According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in the book of Philippians tonight, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to pick up where we were on Sunday in uh, verses 19 through uh, 22 or thereabouts. We're going to take it down through the end of the chapter, verses 19 through 30. But uh, for now, we're still in the early verses there, 19, 20, 21, 22. Before we start, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of teaching tonight, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this evening for the blessing we have to study, to show ourselves approved. We thank you for your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to open the ears of our hearing, and to open our heart, Father. I pray with humility we would receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Feed us tonight from the truth of your word, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we want to take a few minutes. It's become our practice to start Wednesday nights with some question and answer time. And so, uh, Robert, you get the first question for tonight, maybe even the first two questions for tonight. My first question is, um, the, the departed believers, the ones who've gone to be with the Lord, do you think that they have any consciousness of the long span of time it's been since they got there? Do they have any conscious? Say that again, please. Any any real consciousness of how how they're not, are they in a waiting mode, or do you think that I don't know what they're doing, but it, it has been bugging me lately that some of them have been waiting two thousand years. Do you think <laughs> they realize it's been two thousand years? You know, I, I do believe that it is that they are conscious. I believe that they have a it's called a conscious bliss that because they are at home with the Lord. Um, that it's not, some people think it's more of a sleep, that they just put to sleep until the resurrection. And so it's like they just wake up. And, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think Lazarus and the rich man in, in Luke 15 gives us the clue that Lazarus was being comforted. And that speaks to a conscious awareness. So as opposed to an unconscious sleep of some sort. But then as far as the passing of time goes, I don't think, once we are eternal, I don't think that you know, 2,000 years is, is a big deal. It's just a couple of days. You know, to God, a day is, is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And so when we cast off mortality and, and put on immortality and stand face to face with Jesus, I don't think, you know, that the passing of time is the same. You know, it's like talk to, talk to a two year old about something that's going to happen next week, and that's like, you know, 100 years from now, that's forever. Uh, but talk to uh, talk to an older person about something that was five years ago, and that was just like that, you know. So that's the scale we're talking about. So I don't think uh, I don't think it's going to be a big deal that my mother's been there for six years, or that the Apostle Paul's been there for two thousand years, or anything like that. That's kind of what I thought too. Thank you. The other question um, has been fading in and out of my head. I can't get it right now. So anybody else? Okay. Well, we'll come back to you if you think about it again. So, I'll write it down the next time I think of it. Okay. Anybody else have a question? I can bring this to you. Anyone else? Going once, going twice. Sold. Nope, no more questions. So you either think about it or you don't. Okay. All right, well, join me then in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Appreciate that. We have a hope in verse 19. Paul says, I hope. You know, we think about, we use the word hope a lot, and we use hope actually in a very loose way that does not conform to the biblical standard. We use hope very loosely for all kinds of things. You know, uh, I hope, I hope Sharon remembered to get drumsticks at the grocery store, you know, because um, I, I like a good drumstick uh, ice cream cone in the evening. I hope, you know, I hope the Mariners beat uh, the Texas Rangers tonight. I hope, um, and we just hope different things, right? And, uh, and, and that's not the way the Bible uses hope. Uh, Elpizo or Elpis, the Greek, 
usage in the New Testament is such that hope is, is so much stronger than that. That biblical hope is a positive anticipation that's in conformity with what God has promised. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it, it centers us in the will of God for what He's done. And so when we talk about hope, for example, how Paul uh, hoped to send Timothy, sure, he hoped to send Timothy, but that's a, that's a legitimate positive anticipation that's grounded in the leading of the Lord, that's grounded in the apostolic ministry of what they were doing in the second and third missionary journeys there between Paul and Timothy. And, uh, and so he says, I hope in the Lord. And so we've been discussing that aspect as well. Uh, it's not just a hope, but it's a hope in the Lord Jesus. And so that's as Jesus Christ leads, as Jesus Christ directs. Remember, we are yoked to Jesus Christ. And so these kind of hopes we want to be very clear on. And so he's going to send Timothy to uh, conduct a spiritual appraisal of the Philippians, of their church. How's the church doing? How's the pastor doing? How are the members doing? How are the deacons doing? How are the men doing? How are the women doing? And all these things. What about that jailer that got saved? Is he, is he still part of the church? What's happening with his family? And so forth. And this is what we read in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. When I learn of your condition. And uh, that's what it centers on. So uh, is, this, uh, is this gossip? No, not at all. Is this uh, a spy mission? <laughs> well, it's not much of a spy mission when you write a letter ahead of time and send it with a courier like, like this, and they get the book of Philippians when Epaphroditus brings it to them, and they read, oh, Timothy's coming. Oh, Timothy is going to be appraising our spiritual health. And when Timothy estimates everything properly, then Timothy is going to go back to Paul and Timothy is going to report to Paul on how we're doing. See, so uh, that's, they were told up front that that's what it's about. See, uh, a couple weeks ago when I knew that uh, Robert was going to be up in Kansas, he was going to be visiting with Ralph and Dorothy. What did I do? I commissioned him with an apostolic commission to, well not apostolic because I'm not an apostle, but I, I commissioned him with a pastoral commission to not only have fellowship with Ralph and Dorothy, but then also to come back and report and give me the, the accurate representation of how they're doing, see, from his own perspective, from his own eyes. And so not just the, you know, not just the impression I get on the phone call when I, when I talk to Ralph and Ralph, uh, you know, I don't know that he lies to me. I don't believe Ralph would ever lie to me, but I also think that he's not telling me everything and he doesn't have to tell me everything. I don't expect him to tell, him, tell me everything. But since Robert got to see him with his own eyes, got to see Ralph and Dorothy both, then this is my occasion. Come back then and report. Tell me how they're doing. Give me the, give me the true thing. Because it's not gossip and it's not slander, it's, it's love. That's, it's, we're, to, we're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And so uh, that's what uh, Timothy's doing here. With, uh, with the Philippians. And it has some subpoints there I'll pass over. But you understand that it's in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus. That means by His will, according to His leadership. See, remember we are yoked to Jesus Christ. He said, take my yoke upon you. And that's we're, we're expected to do that as we walk this Christian walk. We're not walking this walk by ourselves. We are yoked to Jesus Christ. And so in the Lord Jesus, if you want to do something, <laughs> if you want to go somewhere or do something or have ministry or what have you, uh, it better be in the Lord Jesus because that's who you're yoked to. If He's not going that way, how do you think you're going to go that way? Well, you know, think about it. What's a yoke? The, the yoke is that wooden thing that's connecting together two ox, two oxen, and, and your head is through one hole and His head's through the other hole and you're pulling this cart, right? You're yoked together. And, uh, you know, what happens if you want to go off over here and do whatever? And maybe it's a good thing. It could be a perfectly valid thing. You want to, you know, pursue ministry and do some of it. But, but if Jesus isn't going that way, because Jesus is going this way over here, you understand how this works? So you're yoked together. You want to be walking with the Lord. You want to be hoping with the Lord. You want to be rejoicing in the Lord. You want to be trusting in the Lord. There's a long list of things that we do in the Lord. We greet one another in the Lord. 
We enter a door of ministry in the Lord. We're strong in the Lord. Ephesians 5 says, be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6 says, uh, obey your parents in the Lord, right? All these things that are in the Lord. If you're going to do it in the Lord, that means you're, you're walking with Him, pursuing His leadership in your Christian walk. All right, the consequence of sending Timothy there and back again was for Paul to learn of their condition and to be encouraged. And it's not the normal word for encouraged. Uh, and the only reason I think it's maybe unique is the fact that uh, Paul has a play on words there between the encouraged in verse 19 and the kindred spirit in verse 20. And so it might be that, that Paul is, is using that deliberately as a play on words, but in any event, that he wants to he wants to have a stable soul. And uh, the idea of eupsukeo means that he's going to be well-souled. He's going to be in good in a good soul condition when uh, when Timothy comes back. All right, what we're dealing with now, where we left off on Sunday, is this all-important principle. Selfishness destroys ministry capacity. Selfishness destroys ministry capacity. And we read about it here in 20 and 21, and it's applicable in, in this chapter, but it's so applicable by extension in anything else you want to look at. Selfishness destroys ministry capacity. So uh, let's read the verses and remind ourselves. He says in verse 20, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. He's going to send Timothy and there's nobody else he can send. If, he, if he's not able to send Timothy, well then uh, there's no one else that's going to go. Because Timothy's the only one qualified, the only one suited at this point. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Who will have the true, genuine worry in a biblical way, he will be biblically worried about you, about the you things, the things of you, okay? And uh, the things of you is, uh, is what ministry is all about, not the things of me. The things of me come second. The things of you come first. That's what biblical Christianity is all about. And so selfishness destroys ministry. He says in verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now he doesn't mention any names there. He doesn't have to. Alright? And it would be wrong to name names I suppose anyway, but because uh, they're, they're growing, they're learning, they're getting there. They're just not there yet. And we can piece it together with uh, you know, Ephesians and Colossians. We could piece it together with uh, uh, Philemon even. Onesimus is with them. Alright? Uh, Onesimus is a beloved child, he's useful, but he's being sent back to Colossae, he's being sent back to a slave owner, right? There's no one else that he can send to Philippi. And that's, uh, that's important to, to recognize at this point, all right? Now, the, um, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And so selfishness destroys it. That's true for a pastor. A selfish pastor is not going to edify his flock the way he should be. It's true in any ministry, Sunday school teacher, evangelist, the gift of giving, any, the gift of service, the, any gift. Okay, How about marriage? Is marriage a ministry? Okay, Which is why, is selfishness a good thing for marriage? <laughs> I mean, figure it out, right? Even an unbeliever can figure that out. Selfishness is not good for marriage. And uh, we, we're supposed to be considering the other as more important than ourselves. Okay, beyond just the fact that two human beings getting along together, you know, selfishness is an obstacle there. But marriage is a ministry. You are heirs together of the grace of life, and so there are works that have been prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And those works include the the husband ministry you have to your wife, or the wife ministry you have to your husband. And then the parental ministry you have to your children. Again, if you're a selfish person, you're not ready to have kids yet. Okay? And when the kids come along, uh, you better get rid of that selfishness really quickly. See? And then kids have a good way of, of uh, helping you with that. <laughs> because they spotlight your own selfishness bigger than anything. They throw their little temper tantrums and they do all their selfish things and then you realize quicker than anything, wow. That's my selfishness that I've bequeathed unto them in uh, genetically and spiritually and everything else. All right. 
And so this is what we're dealing with. Timothy is Paul's only student who is kindred spirit. Isopsukos, and I love that. I love that. I've been reading about some chemical isotopes lately just for the fact that I like the iso part of isopsukos. Okay? And so you get an isotope. Timothy's soul is an isotope of Paul's soul. When it comes right down to the, the suke is the soul, right? And so uh, to be of kindred spirit and uh, the aspects there. And this happens. I think this happens primarily too in a local church training ministry. This happens. I consider myself like-minded with Ralph because of how Ralph trained me and the, the friendship and the camaraderie and the, just the reverence and love that I have for that man. I will always have for that man. And uh, same thing with, with uh, me and Cliff and, and Pastor Dan and, and all the rest. In fact, I get to have lunch with Pastor Dan tomorrow, so that's going to be pretty cool. All right. And this is what we talk about, this camaraderie and this blessing. Paul and Timothy had that, and that's the model that we're attempting to replicate in this training ministry here. <clears throat> Timothy's, uh, he shares Paul's genuine concern. And keep in mind, the word for concern here is the word for worry. It's the word for worry. This is, the Bible gives us license to worry only so long as we worry for the right things, for the right reasons, in the right way. Okay? Which means we have to worry in faith. We have to worry in hope. We have to worry in a sanctified worry. And so whether it's the verb merimnao or the noun merimna or the adjective merimnos or some of the other cognate forms of it, it's the word for worry. So it's not going to be too much longer. We're going to be in chapter 4, right? And uh, Okay, it'll be a while. But we'll get to chapter 4 and verse 6 says, don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. The Bible tells you don't worry about anything. So if you worry it's a sin, right? The Bible tells you not to do it. But here in this chapter we're told that worry is legitimate. That Timothy shares the same worry, the same concern that Paul has for the Philippian believers. And so, how do we get around this? Well, in English, we get around it by semantics. <laughs> in English, we just uh, we get we get uh, we get quirky about how we use the words. So we use the word worry if it's the bad thing, the sin, and we use the word concern if it's uh, the good thing, if it's appropriate, right? And so, right now, my, you know, my daughter's in Hawaii. Am I worried? No, I'm concerned. <laughs> okay? But she's on a different island that doesn't have a volcano exploding, so I'm still concerned. Uh, you know, but, but that's only because of beaches and, and bikinis and boys. But that's, that's, that's because I'm a dad. Okay? So, is it worry and it's a sin? Is it concern and it's sanctified? It's biblical. It's right. Okay. Well, we can play those semantic games in English, but it's the same Greek word. Okay? It's the same Greek word. So at a certain point, we've got to realize, okay, it's not a semantic wordplay, but it is an issue with respect to the reasons, the focus, the faith. Okay? And so it's useful to do this. These are the, uh, I love this, Timothy shares Paul's genuine concern for what? For the Philippians, the concerning you things. The Philippians concerning you things. And, and, and I can't tell you how fun this is because concerning and concerning can mean two different things, right? If I want to talk to you concerning you know, a, a certain matter, I want to talk to you concerning. I have, I have a discussion concerning... Uh, Scrabble, right? Well, that might not be too concerning. You might not be concerned. <laughs> but Paul is concerned for the things concerning the Philippians. And that's the, that's, the, that's the pun. And whether it was intended or not, it's there. The concerning you things. Back in Philippians 1.12, we had the concerning me things. Remember that? He says in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that the concerning me things have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Those are the concerning me things in verse 12. 
I want you to know uh, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And this is why, you know, years and years and years ago, Pastor Theme developed mastery of the circumstances and details of life. That's ultimately what it is. All these concerning you things are just things. They're just things. And, uh, and you may not like them, but he's going to use them. They may turn out for the greater progress of the gospel, so praise God. All right, so the concerning me things was in uh, Philippians 1.12. The concerning you things is in uh, Philippians 2 uh, and verse 20 where it's called your welfare. Your welfare is the, the, the concerning you things. The concerning you things. All right, so we took some time on Sunday. I'm not going to reteach all this, but um, it's useful. If you want to put the, the verses down, here's a list of verses where worry is bad. Okay, and uh, you know, worrying about food, worrying about clothing. We should be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Worrying about uh, adding a single cubit to our lifespan. Worrying about so many things. Martha was worried about so many things, and Mary was sitting there getting Bible class, <laughs> right? And so, there's a lot of bad worry, and we're told, "Be anxious for nothing, but in everything." By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And so uh, we're not to worry. Casting all our anxiety on Him because He cares for you. So if it's, if it's the wrong kind of worry, just give it to the Lord. Just say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to quit worrying about this. It's yours. Deal with it. <laughs> okay? I just want to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And then there's concern in the good sense, which includes marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should be concerned about his wife, the wife should be concerned about her husband. It's all throughout 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about concern in, uh, in a legitimate way, in a good sense. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Let me grab that real quickly here. This is why we have different members in the body and we shouldn't have any division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That word care is the same word for worry. We should have the same worry one for another. And just because another member of the body has a problem, does that mean you know we escape? No. We're members of the same body. They're an ear, we're a foot, but we're still connected. And if there's cancer somewhere, <laughs> you know, do we just say, whew, glad that's not me. It is you. Are you kidding me? Just because the, it's a different member of the body that's suffering, we all suffer. And so we should have the same care for one another, the same worry for one another. And I'm worried right now. I tell you, Austin Bible Church is under attack. And I'm worried about this flock. I'd be insane not to be worried about this flock. And I hope we're all worried for one another. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Another positive use. And uh, where Paul says, uh, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern, worry, for all the churches. Worry for all the churches. Who is led into sin? Who is weak without my becoming weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? So there's concern and there's intense concern. And so you have an apostle here who's taught doctrine, he's taught the Word of God, and then he watches uh, a believer who should know better walking off into a sin lifestyle. Does that hurt? Sure it hurts. And there's worry. There's concern. And I can't even imagine what an apostle's like because he's got multiple flocks, multiple local churches spread out all over the world. It's bad enough just being a, a pastor with one flock. Say. And this apostle, he's got multiple flocks and multiple shepherds, multiple pastors. They're the biggest knuckleheads of all. <laughs> he's, he's most worried about the pastors. When Jesus is writing to seven churches in Revelation, who's he writing to? The seven pastors of those seven churches. And so this is concern in a good sense. So worry in the bad sense, concern in the good sense, but it's the same vocabulary in the Greek. It's the same verb, adjective, noun, what have you. All in this family, the Merimonao family, the Merimna family. 
All right, worry in the bad sense, concern in the good sense. And so uh, we might have to start thinking of this more frequently like we do uh, fear, good fear, bad fear, uh, jealousy, good jealousy, bad jealousy. There's a lot of things that, uh, that have a kind of a polar distinction in, in our application. Okay, Anger. There's a sanctified anger. Most of it is, of course, carnal anger, but there is. Be angry, yet do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger. Okay? Different things there. Now, let's look at verse 22. God's design to supplant selfishness. God's got a way to, uh, to supplant this. He's got a way to train it. He's got a way. And it's called growing up. And it's called an older generation bringing up the next generation. God's design to supplant selfishness is selfless service. And where do you learn that selfless service? Well, it's modeled and it's passed on generationally. It's modeled and it's passed on generationally. So if the parents are selfish, that's what the kids are going to imitate. That's what they're going to see, that's what they're going to learn. And so selfish parents are going to train up selfish children and they will enter their adult capacity twice as selfish as their parents. More entitled, more self-centered, more uh, out of the will of God. But when the parents are saved and they're walking according to the Word of God and they're being shaped according to the selfless service principles of grace, Not only do they get the right kind of teaching, but then it's modeled before them. They see it. Children in a Christian home, they see a Christian father and a Christian mother, and they see the the sacrificial love between them. They see the the humility. They see the, the selfless service. It's modeled before them. And so we see this here. You know His proven worth, Philippians 2.22. Philippians 2.22, you know His proven worth that He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving His Father. Like a child serving His Father. This is what happens. And so the older man's in ministry. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't dismiss the young kid, doesn't brush him off and say, you know, grow up and get doctrine, come back when you're older. He takes him with him. Ten-year-old boy, I think, at the point that he picked him up in in, uh, Derby on the second missionary journey. That's my estimate. That's my ballpark estimate. And when you're estimating ten, you can't be that far off. (laughs) You know, plus or minus a couple of years. All right. And so you know his proven worth. Timothy's actually a combat veteran. Timothy actually has been in ministry for some time. He has traveled. He has seen conflict. He saw Paul go to jail. You know, Timothy was there when Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. Why was Timothy not thrown in jail? What happened to him? He saw the whole thing. And likewise, when uh, they got driven out out of Thessalonica and Jason had to put up the money to make sure they didn't come back, And specifically, Paul and Silas were driven out of town. They didn't say anything about Timothy. Well, who cares about the 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy? He was not on the concern at all. So a couple weeks go by, three weeks go by, what does Paul do? Sends Timothy back into Thessalonica. Can you imagine? Can you imagine sending your 10-year-old to uh, what would be the equivalent? You know, Detroit. (laughs) Chicago. Okay, maybe it wasn't that violent, but still, from Athens to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas couldn't go back. So he says, you know what, Timothy? You You got some work to do. And he sends Timothy back to teach Bible class in Thessalonica. That's extraordinary. So God's design, and this is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you discipline and you train and you, the child grows and you discipline that selfishness out of them. 
like, like a father-son work project. <laughs> like a father-son work project. You know, dad's working on the car, so he gets his boy out there and uh, teaches him about the carburetor and the spark plugs and, and uh, different things until he learns that his son is hopeless. And then he just gives up and says, here, hold the flashlight. <laughs> Can you shine a light here, please? Thank you. Yeah. And of course, you're frozen, standing it there in total fear, locking that light in there so that he can see what he's doing. Okay. But they, they slaved together. You know when it says in verse 22, he served with me, that service is duleo, duluo, it's the bond service, it's the work of a slave. They were bond slaves. In fact, that's how the book started. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. They're fellow slaves. And they slave together. They've been slaving together for years. Again, depending on different things, you can tweak it slightly in, in some uh, New Testament chronology. And there's good men that have different schematics for how do they synchronize the book of Acts with Paul's epistles. But I don't, I mean, it can't be much after, I mean, we're, we're pretty solid on that second missionary journey when they come into, into uh, Corinth. We know who the proconsul was there. We know who was there. And we have Roman secular records of when he was there. Gallio, when Paul was dragged before the Bema seat. So we know the time frame with it plus or minus one year. And, uh, and we know when Paul's writing 1 Timothy, he tells, first, he tells Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Okay, so now if that was in 62 AD and, and Timothy, uh, Timothy joined the group in 49 or 50, well what does that mean? It means 12 or 13 years have gone by. 12 or 13 years have gone by. So if you've been in ministry for 13 years and a local church might still consider you youthful, too young, they might scorn you, they might reject you, they might decide, well, you're too young, you can't pastor me, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, then how young was he at that time? And take off 13 years for how young he was when he first started. And I think that kind of, I think that kind of um, narrows it down. All right. So, like a father-son work project, Paul and Timothy slaved together in the gospel ministry. Timothy is an approved workman. Timothy is an approved workman. You know his proven worth. They know it. You know his proven worth, his docky may. You know his docky may, his proven worth. They don't need seminary credentials. They don't need, you know, an ordination certificate. They don't need uh, different things. It's funny when you talk about what are the what are the requirements? What are the qualifications? What is it that's the proven worth? Well, this takes us into some other studies, and we've done these many times by the way, and um, I don't know if you're tired of hearing about them or not but I love talking about them so you're going to hear about them again. But the, the, the verb is dakamazo and it's used 22 times in the New Testament dakimazo D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O, that's that first of the Greek words that's up there Strong's Numbers, number 1321 it has 22 uses in the New Testament and that's not tempting that's testing and testing is good. Testing is good because God uses testing to prove that something is useful, that something is appropriate, that something is, is prepared and fit. This is a word that, that a blacksmith would use. You ever pound a hammer? Uh, John Weaver's going through a class right now. He's getting doing some metalworking. Tell me about that this morning, right? And, you know, so you're pounding metal. And, uh, wow, okay. And, uh, and this was the word that was used when a blacksmith was forging a weapon. And he's testing the quality of his metal. Because if it doesn't pass the test, he doesn't finish the sword. 
He doesn't sharpen the blade. He doesn't put a handle on it. He doesn't mount it with a hilt. He doesn't uh, put it in a scabbard. He doesn't put it into service. has no business being a sword because the metal doesn't pass the test. And if the metal doesn't pass the test, he scraps it, melts it down and starts over. Okay? This is what it means to test for approval. God is, this is what God does. God is all about this in our life. And Jesus passed the test and we passed the test. God's at work in us so that we pass the test. This is like the like the, the, the Fruit of the Loom underwear, right? Remember those old commercials? It was on TV all the time, the Fruit of the Loom underwear and passed the inspection. They were stretching and pulling and whatever. And, you know, they put a little sticker in there that was inspected by inspector number 14 or whatever. Remember those commercials? And so that's what God's doing. And, and He puts those stickers on us, right? <laughs> approved. Timothy is approved. Timothy's got that Fruit of the Loom sticker on him. It says approved. He is an approved workman. And that's important. So that's the verb. Dokimos is the adjective. D-O-K-I-M-O-S. That's got seven uses. Dokime is a noun. That's the one we have here. That also has seven uses. So you know, put all those together. 22 and 7 and 70. That's not a terrible amount. And you can search through all those verb uses. Search through all those uh, noun and adjective uses. And you get this idea that God is here for our approval, which is why we're in Bible class. We're in Bible class to be approved. Present yourselves a workmen needing not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is what Timothy is, okay? And so it's not an age thing either. There's, uh, there's old people who <laughs> have been saved for a long, long time and they are not approved workmen. Ever living and never coming to a knowledge of the truth wanting to have their ears tickled. They're hearers only and not doers of the Word of God. They delude themselves. They are not approved workmen. And yet you have younger believers. In some cases the children of this congregation are memorizing Scripture and living out their faith and making application and I just love seeing them and how they're growing. Maybe it can rub off on some older people. (laughs) And different things. All right. And so uh, we have this whole family. Now this family, by the way, is in contrast with a different family of verbs called peirazzo. And I don't have it on the screen, but that peirazzo term, that's tempt. Tempt, not test, but tempt. And that's what Satan does. Satan is our tempter. Satan, he, and sometimes it seems like tempting and testing it might be the same thing externally. Satan does it to tempt us. God permits it to test us. Okay, but when Satan is tempting, it's never Satan never has the objective. Satan has is never for our approval. Satan's never tempting us to show the world how doctrine works, to show the world how faithful the Lord is, to show the world how grace is uh, is is victorious every time. When Satan tempts, it's, it's always to plunge us into sin, bring about God's discipline, bring about something that discredits the name of Christ. Okay. And remember, God Himself does not tempt, nor can He be tempted by anyone. He's not temptable and He doesn't tempt. So that's a big difference too. Okay? All right. Now this concept comes back in, uh, or we've already had it in Philippians 1.10. Remember this? When He was praying for them in the opening prayer of chapter 1, He says in verse 9, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may dokimazo the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We're all supposed to grow in this regard. Every believer in this congregation ought to be able to not just know the difference between the good and the bad, the excellent and the less than excellent, but then prove it demonstrate it. Put it out there on display by living it. That's the demonstration. So I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve. You're the blacksmith. You're testing the the steel quality. You may approve, dokimazo, the things that are excellent. 
you are approving them as you live them out. And I should have put on there, by the way, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's the same concept. We are living the Word of God. We display the, the will of God. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, we're just living out the Christian walk, and there's nothing better. We're on display, we're proving it as we're living it. Okay, so it's not on the screen, but let me give you Romans 12. I'll make sure it's on the screen before Sunday morning. How about that? Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You're the living sacrifice. Old Testament sacrifices are dying sacrifices. (laughs) Okay? When the sheep shows up, it's so that he can be killed in the Old Testament. When we show up, it's so that we can be of service. We are living sacrifices. We are here presenting ourselves for service. A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here I am, Father, send me, use me. I'm a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove, that's our documento again, prove what the will of God is. The good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Timothy was able to do that. He was the only one of Paul's students able to do that. His proven worth. So he's an approved workman. How about uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.4? Another use of all these terms. <laughs> and this is describing what I was talking about earlier, that when they got to Thessalonica there was conflict. When they, and when they came into town they, they didn't stay long because they were driven out of town. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So they went to Philippi, they got in trouble, they got thrown in jail. They got beaten, they were abused. (laughs) But, I mean, it worked together for good, didn't it? The jailer got saved. His family got saved. There was a big revival in, in Philippi. And so they got out of jail the next morning and they were excited. They were ready to get to the next town and work all the, you know, all the more to work, redouble their efforts. You know, you think about that. Wow. They, did, they weren't earthly minded, certainly. They didn't stop with a note of caution and say, well, we... Uh, we're going to learn from that lesson and we're going to not rock the boat so much. We're going to be more quiet about our faith. No, they were louder about their faith. And Timothy's right there with them. Right there with them. And uh, so we, were, we had boldness. goes on to say, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. Notice that? So we speak. Paul says, just as we have been approved by God. Why is Paul in the apostolic ministry? Because he's been approved by God. Same verb, dokimazo. To be entrusted with the gospel. Who does God approve and who does God entrust? See, when he calls you into ministry... You need to be approved. You need to be faithful. If you're not faithful, is He going to open a door of ministry for you? No. No, no. That's right. Remember, a spiritual gift is a great thing. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. But a ministry, ministries are awarded on the basis of faithfulness. Okay? Grace, you don't deserve a thing. You don't deserve your gift. That's grace. But ministry, you do deserve or you disqualify based on faithfulness, faithlessness. If you're faithful in little things, he'll entrust you with bigger things. But if you're faithless in little things, he's closing that door. You're not ready. All these people that Paul had with him, they weren't ready. 
Only Timothy was ready. Ministry is a sign on the basis of faithfulness. And so you've got to be an approved workman. Paul says, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And now you're really ready to serve because you know who you're working for. You're humble before the Lord because you're serving Him in this realm of service. You're an approved workman and you stay faithful because He's the one you want to please. You want to please the one that enlisted you as a soldier. You want to please the one that put you into service. Wow. God, you've entrusted me with sheep. You've entrusted me with brothers and sisters that need to be fed, they need to be tended, they need to be uh, doctored, whatever. I mean, veterinary medicine, whatever you call that. Um, you've got to bind up the broken, you've got to heal the sick, you've got to feed the hungry. They need to be, uh, I mean, because sh- sheep are stupid. You've got you to tell them when to lay down, you've got to tell them when to walk, you've got to take them out and bring them back, lead them beside the still waters. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's the nature of it. So you're entrusted, and you're entrusted. Are you going to be faithful to what you've been entrusted with? Because that's who you're working for. That's who you're working for. So, uh, as we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And he goes on to talk about the different aspects there. Okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 3.10. Here we have qualifications for elders, qualifications for deacons. And in the... Uh, in the elder paragraph, the vocabulary is slightly different. The expression is, uh, is uh, different. There's a higher standard to be an elder. And it says in, in 3.6, it says, not a new convert. Not a new convert. So if you have a believer, he might have a pastor-teacher gift, but he hasn't been saved very long. He's a new convert. He's a neophyte. So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And so, uh, you know, if somebody was just saved this morning, he's got the spiritual gift. He, I mean, we have the same gift we have at the moment of our salvation. But he's not ready to take a church today or tomorrow or anytime soon. He's got to train. He's got to develop that gift. He can't be a neophyte. Now, for deacons, it's curious because... A deacon might be a neophyte, if you're that desperate for deacons. <laughs> take, who you, take who you can get. But if he is new in his faith, at first, though, make sure he's tested. Test him out. Test him out. And so the expression in verse 10 says, these men must first also be tested. Documents are not tempted, tested for approval. Documazo, tested for approval. If they're approved workmen, then put them to work. They can join their fellow deacons. And they're going to work with older deacons and they're going to, you know, come alongside. As they stay faithful as deacons, then they'll be entrusted with greater things. Maybe they'll be an elder at some point. Okay? But for now, they can be deacons if they are tested. And, um, let them uh, serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Okay? That's part of the testing process. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you think this only applies to pastors? This is every believer, every brother, every sister. Spudazzo is the verb to be diligent. Present yourself. Stand before him. Stand before him. To, to stand and be recognized, right? Take your stand. You stand before him. I think uh, too many Christians would just, you know, Sit on the back row. <laughs> yep, sitting on the back row. Metaphorically, 
Take a stand. Present yourself. Stand forward. Present yourself. Present yourself. What does that mean? Well, you're reporting for duty. You're standing before your commander. Present yourself. When the drill sergeant calls your name, especially a mail call, I got called a lot in boot camp because my sisters kept sending me care packages and cards and whatever. And, and so you, they do mail call and they call out your name. Present yourself. You go running out there. You present yourself to your drill sergeant. And he told you how many push-ups you had to do to get your mail. And so you dropped and you gave him however many he told you. And then you got your mail and you went back. And then he called you again because he had two sisters. <laughs> and he wasn't going to give you all at once. Of course not. You're going to go back a second time and do more push-ups. And a third time because mom sent a package. Okay? And every time he calls, you present yourself. Present yourself. This verb says present yourself. Be diligent to present yourself. Approved. You're presented approved. I belong here. I'm yours. I'm ready for duty. Ready for service. Name it. Okay? And that's what it's about. All right. Had a neat talk with my son today. He got to present himself to the president of Logos Bible Software. The founder of Logos. Bob Pritchett himself. The number one man. And uh, his, who likes to meet all the new employees for the, for the software company. So he got to present himself to, uh, to Bob Pritchett, which was pretty cool as far as that goes. All right. Approved to God as workmen. Oh, look at that. It doesn't say spectator. <laughs> it doesn't say, you know, passive disciple that learns a lot of stuff. It says workmen. We're not hearers only that delude ourselves. We are workers. We are hearers of the word and doers of the word because we are workmen. Not needing to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. So that's Timothy, the approved workman. So again, depending on how we date Philippians now, uh, I think it should be earlier than later. I think it marks his uh, approved status. Rather than taking this as some kind of a Roman imprisonment from Acts 26. Okay? I think this is an Ephesian imprisonment from Acts chapter 20. And so it's much earlier in uh, the chronology there of the New Testament. All right. Point four. Let me go back to verse 23. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. So now we're adding the hope. We're adding, we've already had the hope. We're adding the faith with the trusting. And we have the seeing. As soon as I see how things go with me. And so we got a combination here we got to work our way through. Verse 23 and verse 24. We have hope, we have faith, we have seeing. And we have principles that have to be biblically put together because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. We don't have to see it to have faith. We don't have to see it to hope. In fact, if we do see it, it's not really hope, is it? Okay. If we hope for what we've seen, what's that? All right, so I'm going to kind of walk us through this aspect here. This is point four in the outline. Faith equips the believer to operate, hopefully, apart from seeing. That's what faith's all about. Faith equips the believer to operate, hopefully, apart from seeing. And we'll prove this biblically. We'll show you the verses that demonstrate this. I think it's undeniable. Romans 8.24, 2 Corinthians 4.18 and 5.7, Hebrews 11.1. That's what faith is. But where does faith come from? How can we do that? How can we believe not seeing? Well, it's a different kind of seeing and it's a response 
to doctrinal clarity. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is a response to doctrinal clarity. And this, this slide, by the way, is, is vital. And I've only got five minutes left tonight, but this slide is vital. So we're going to spend time on this Sunday morning. Because we have a lot of believers right now that are going through this right now. Seminary students, they don't know where they're going to be living next month. They don't know where they're going to be pastoring when they, when, if they're going to be pastoring or uh, what God's going to do with them in their training. And so things we don't see yet. We don't see things yet. So we're still walking by faith. But we're walking in response to the doctrinal clarity. We're walking in response to what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. We're walking in response to what He's leading this flock to do. So faith is a response to doctrinal clarity, removing all doubt. And so he says here, as soon as I see, that split second, that precise moment, just as soon as he sees what the will of God is, when all of these in the Lord questions are resolved, when he gets the clarity, when he hears the, the, the voice of the Lord, when everything is now into place, as soon as I see, indicates that Paul's decision is already made pending a last moment adjustment as per the will of Jesus Christ. Alright? And we're going to spell that out for you as well because this as soon as I see is interesting. From, from Philippians 2.23 to uh, Hebrews 12.2 fixing our eyes on Jesus to Jonah 4.5 to Jonah 4.5 Jonah went up on the hill and sat under the tree so he could see what uh, was going to happen to Nineveh. And here's Paul waiting to see what's going to happen to himself. The only difference is Jonah was pouting about it and Paul was willing to accept whatever. <laughs> okay, Jonah knew actually what the outcome was going to be. He just wanted to watch it happen so he could you know, do the I told you so routine and, and uh, justify himself in his own eyes. But as soon as I see... so. So this is kind of a long point, but just think about it between now and Sunday. Because Paul doesn't yet see what his uh, outcome is going to be. But as soon as he does see it, he's ready to, uh, to proceed forward in, in the plan that he has pending. As soon as I see, he's going to send Timothy. There's just one little thing that's left for Timothy to go. One last thing before he goes. And so as soon as he gets that last piece of the puzzle, then all right, Timothy, you're out of here. And Timothy's able to then travel to Philippi. Because the decision's already been made pending a last moment adjustment. See, God can still overrule. God can still overrule. And I like to include that. We're going to talk about how do we include asking God to thwart our will? <laughs> how do we pray like that? How do we pray like that? I think it's a perfect model. Jesus prayed that way. Paul prayed that way. I think I can find other examples as well. We should pray that way. See, this is in the Lord. Not my will but thine be done. And so we pray, Father, Father, uh, this is what I want to do. Father, this is where I want to go. Father, this is what I have in mind. Father, I've got a plan. I've got an idea. I can't shake it. I want to have student housing. We want to do these things. We want to replicate the ministry that they have in Kiev, Ukraine. The model that they have there as they house their students, as they train their, their, in their, on their campus, as they do these things. And Father, that's a model I want to put into place. That's a model that, uh, that I intend to put into place. But show me, Father, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And if I'm wrong, then close that door, overrule, don't let me do this. Okay? Don't let me do this. David wanted to build the temple and God sent a dream and said, don't do it. Your son's going to do it. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with making your intentions known, but then you say, not my will but thine be done. Because I intend to do this, Father, and if you want me to not do it, close the door. Step in. Overrule. And it's a marvelous way to pray. We'll talk more on that Sunday morning. Lord willing and rapture pending. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the Word of God. And here's these little verses, just a short little passage in Philippians 2, Father, where Paul said, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. And there's so much uh, application that we can drive from these, 
these simple verses. Help us to see um, how Paul's thinking was shaped, how our thinking should be shaped. There's things that we hope to do. There's things we hope our children do. And yet, Father, uh, all of these things are in your hands. Your will be done. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty.